0: All right. in the last lesson, we hit the first uh, third or so of John chapter 3, and the, my desire is to hit the rest of the chapter today. Uh, we talked in the last lesson about what Jesus said. We started talking about what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again of water and the Spirit. And we talked about what that means, and of course the early church understood that as referring to water baptism, and that's completely consistent with all the what the other scriptures say about baptism. In, in the next lesson, we're going to cover what in, in Protestant America is probably the best-known verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, but we're going to read it in context, which is generally not something that, uh, that, that people do who, who flash that verse. Uh, we're going to look at a rather obscure Story in the book of Numbers that Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus, who's a, a Jewish teacher, and and Jesus brings out the story to make a make a very important point. And what we think of as an obscure story, we're going to look at that, and then we'll look at the uh, what Jesus says about the spiritual battle involving light and darkness. I want to begin by reading John chapter three, verses twelve to seventeen. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. John chapter 3. So we'll back up and and, back up and, and start reading in verse uh, 12 and continue through verse 17. Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is, the Son of Man who's in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world... Through him might be saved. So I want to start off by looking at the generally ignored part of this passage, which is Jesus' reference to the serpent in the wilderness. The, uh, that takes us back to a story in the, the, that Moses tells us about in Numbers chapter 21. So let's turn back there and read what Jesus is talking about the story about the serpent in the wilderness. So remember, this is part of a discussion that Jesus is having with Nicodemus who Jesus describes as he says, well, you're the teacher of Israel. Don't you understand these things? So he's he's talking to someone who knows the scriptures very well and he's making a point from the story in Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. So this is while the Jews were wandering in the wilderness. They spent 40 years in the wilderness after they left Egypt on the way to the promised land. So let's start reading at verse 4. I'm reading from uh, uh, Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the the, the Septuagint. So a few words may be different, but it's going to be basically the same in, in what you're reading, I'm sure. Then they departed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, and they went around the land of Edom, and the people became discouraged on the way. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us in the desert? For there's no bread nor water, and our soul is weary of this worthless bread. Which is, of course, referring to the manna that they got from God every day. Continuing in verse 6. So the Lord sent venomous serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the children of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and were saying, We sinned, for we spoke against the Lord and against you. Therefore pray to the Lord. Let him take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a serpent for yourself and put it on a signal pole. And it shall be, if a serpent should bite someone, when the one bitten looks at it, he shall live. So Moses made a copper serpent... Some translations will say bronze. And put it on a signal pole. And it happened when the serpent bit anyone that he looked at the copper serpent and he lived. So this is the story that Jesus is referring to as the background for John 3.16. So let's think about this. The, The people are complaining about their time in the wilderness. They're complainers. They don't like the lot in life that they have. God has just rescued them from Egypt, has just wrecked the nation of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, escorted them out, and is providing them with manna every single day. And what's the attitude of the people? The attitude of the people is they're complaining. They don't like what they've got. They're bored. They're sick and tired of eating manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they start complaining against God and against Moses saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We were having a great time back there. Why why couldn't we have just been left alone in Egypt? Why did you have to bring us out here to die in this horrible desert? I mean, think about it. They are, now there is some truth in what they're saying. They are in the deserts. Okay, and in the desert, this is not this is not Palm Springs. This is a this is a, this is a desert that is infested with scorpions and snakes, where there's nothing to eat, and they're going to be there for forty years as a result of their sin before they go into the Promised Land. So, do they have any reason to complain? Well, they have some hardships, but there's no reason to complain. <clears throat> Paul talks about this incident actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about the whole Exodus story is a foreshadowing of the Christian life. He says they were all baptized, but most of them didn't make it into the promised land. This is a warning to us. And they fell to four sins in the wilderness, and four bad things happened to them, and they died in the wilderness. And one of the things, it says, make sure that none of you test the Lord and be killed by snakes as they were. And he also talks about the people grumbling and complaining. So there's a lesson in this story that there's never any justification for complaining. Now, most Christians don't think of complaining is a bad sin. This is like a this is like a sport. This is like minor minor wordplay. Well, I had a rough day, this is going on, that's going on, and complain about your spouse, complain about your job, complain about your financial situation, whatever. And um, so the Lord says, Don't complain. Some of the people didn't make it, and we wouldn't normally rank complaining up with idolatry and adultery and sexual immorality, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says there are four sins, sexual immorality, uh, idolatry, complaining and testing the Lord, which they're doing right here. So in God's view, this is, this is a big deal. He, he, God, is, God wants us to purge the complaining spirit out of our hearts and to have a tight rein on our tongues, so that we're not complainers in life. So that's one of the lessons from this story. Now, Jesus, Paul makes that point from this story in Numbers 21. Jesus is making another point out of the same story. The people cry out to God. They realize that these poisonous snakes that are biting them and killing them were sent by God as a result of their sin. And so they, 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 they turn themselves into Moses and say, Moses, you have an end with God. Can you please, we, we've sinned against God, we've sinned against you, can you please intervene on our behalf and pray to God? So Moses prays to God and God tells him what they need to do in order to solve the problem. And he's told to make a snake. Of all things, he's told to make a snake. And so he makes a snake out of bronze or copper, or something like that. So he imagines the yellow, orange, molten molten metal that's formed. And he puts it on different translations. Some translations will say he put it on a pole. Or in the translation I read, it's a signal pole. I mean, literally in the Septuagint, it just says, put it on a sign, which is very interesting. The same word is used there. And Septuagint was was used by the the early church, first 300 years, and when Jesus and the apostles are quoting from the Old Testament, that's what they use. So when they're reading it, when they're reading the story, it says, put the serpent on a sign. That's the same word when Moses, when God gives Moses three signs to show the people that he's from God. This is the same word in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 12, where... Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this is the same word. Very interesting to me. He says, put it on a sign. So imagine it's like a, like a sign pole of some sort. So there, there's, a, uh, there's a pole, it's a stick, and Moses fastens this bronze or copper serpent on it. For everyone to see. So this serpent is held up on a pole so everyone can see it. So anyone who's bitten by a serpent can look on this snake on a pole and be healed and be saved. Now, there's something strange about this story here. Think about where the, the people had come out of. They come out of Egypt, which was a land where people worshipped all kinds of animals. And they had all they were involved in all kinds of idolatry. In the Ten Commandments, the second commandment that God gives, this is in Exodus chapter 20, he says, don't make an image of anything. Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says the same thing. Don't make an image of anything that's up in the sky, that's walking around, that's creeping along the ground. And, and the people got in huge trouble. When, remember when Moses went up on the mountain on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments? They got in huge trouble when the people came back down because they had made a golden calf. They made the image of a calf, and God is very upset with the people, and there's tremendous, horrible consequences that happen as a result of that sin. But here God is telling them, make, make a snake, a bronze snake, and put it on a pole. Well, what about all these teaching against don't make an image of anything and about, about idolatry? This is a very strange thing that God would tell them to do, what he just told them in the Ten Commandments, to never do. So why does he do this? And and, and, and actually, this serpent ended up getting them into trouble later. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. See see the end of this, this serpent here. Or if you have an Orthodox Bible, it's Fourth Kingdoms. Second Kings chapter 18. You didn't say what verse chug You're right. It's verses 1 to 4. It's a story about Hezekiah. So we'll see We'll see what happens to the snake that Jesus talks about. Uh, uh, in chapter 18, verse 1, Now in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the son of the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what is right in the eyes of the Lord according to everything his father David did. He removed the high places and broke into pieces the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent Moses had made. Because up to those days, the sons of Israel had burned incense to it. They called it Nehushtan. So imagine this is that this bronze snake that had healed the people, eventually, it does become an idol and it does become a snare to the people. They're mounting it, they're, they're holding it up, they're burning incense to it as if, it's, as if it's another god. So it gets so bad that the snake that had, had helped them, Hezekiah, breaks it into pieces to stop the idolatry that came out of that. So, uh, why, why was Moses told by God to make an image of a serpent when God told the people not to make images of anything? Well, Tertullian, he's a writer from Carthage in North Africa who lived a bit around the years uh, 160 to 225, talked about this story and, and, and asked that question, answers it. He says, why again? He's writing to the Jews in a work called An Answer to the Jews. He says, why again did the same Moses, after the prohibition of making the likeness of anything, set forth a bronze serpent placed on a tree, You know, meaning a, a wood, and, and in a hanging posture for a spectacle to healing of Israel at the time when, after their idolatry, they were suffering extermination by serpents, except that in this case, he was exhibiting the Lord's cross on which the serpent, the devil, was to be made a show of. For he who gazed upon that cross was freed from the bite of serpents. That's in uh, In Inter-Nicene Fathers, Volume 3, page 166. So, He's tying this in with the defeat of Satan and the serpents being sin. That this is all about the, the defeat of sin through the cross. That this was a foreshadowing of the cross. Jesus made the point himself in John 3.14. He says, as Moses lifted up the, servant in the, the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that expression that he uses there, he uses the same thing in John chapter 12 verse 32, he says if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Similarly in John chapter 8 verse 28, he says when you lift up the son of man then you will know that I am he that I do nothing of myself but my father as as my father taught me, I speak these things. So This lifted up is referring to Jesus physically being lifted up on the cross. That The story of the people being saved from snake bite by this strange bronze or copper snake on a pole is foreshadowing that salvation from sin would come only by people looking to the cross of Christ. The same expression lifted up is used in Isaiah 52 where the whole the famous passage that's Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53 through the end of chapter 53 it begins with a statement it says in, in the Septuagint behold my servant shall have wisdom and shall be exalted and glorified exceedingly the word exalted the Septuagint it says he will be lifted up behold my servant will be lifted up uh, so this is all, I think this all ties back to the cross, is that this was God's plan, that the instrument of salvation would be Jesus being lifted up on a cross. In John chapter 2, we saw Jesus talking in the form of a riddle about his resurrection, where he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in the three days. And here he's using an analogy to make the same point about how he was going to die, that he would have to be lifted up. The cross, the idea that Jesus would be saving us through being crucified on a cross, while it may be a very familiar idea to us, it is particularly to me, I grew up in a Catholic background, and so there was tremendous emphasis on the cross. We'd go into a church that was usually in the center of the church, a, a big image of Jesus on the cross. This was definitely impressed on my mind visually, the idea of Jesus suffering on the cross, that this is the way that we are saved. But this is a problem for a lot of people. Paul talked about this in his own day, and it's still true. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. And to Greeks, foolishness. The Jews, the whole whole idea that they could have killed the Messiah in such a horrible way as crucifying him on a cross is is so abhorrent to the Jews that they just block it out. They did in Paul's day and they still do today to understand, no, this had to happen. It was all foreshadowed in the story in Numbers with the bronze serpent, the crucifixion. He would have to be lifted up. And, of course, the philosophical types, this is ridiculous. They're looking for a a guru sitting on a mountain somewhere who's going to dispense great wisdom. Instead, we're presenting Jesus dying on a cross to pay the price for our sins. And this is a stumbling block, particularly from Muslims today as well, because in the Quran it says Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It only appeared that he died on the cross, But we see that according to Jesus, the fact that he would have to be lifted up and die on the cross was foreshadowed well over a thousand years beforehand in the wilderness itself in that story. Now, you may be wondering, why would Jesus be represented as a snake? This is very offensive to us. I can see Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, or Jesus as the Lamb of God, but Jesus as the snake of God—that just seems—that seems so absurd. What do you think of in the Bible when you think about a snake? Satan. You think of Satan. You think of Satan. You think of Satan. It's Satan in the Garden of Eden. It talks about as a snake in the Book of Revelation. It talks about the old serpent, Satan, the devil. Uh, so that's the way—that's the way Satan is projected throughout Scripture. So why? Would Jesus be represented as a serpent, which we normally think of as, as, uh, as, as connected with with, uh, with Satan? I'll give you two two possible ideas. In in Peter, First Peter chapter two, verse twenty four. Consider what he said about the cross. He said, "Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree; that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness." by whose stripes we are healed. So the picture is that when Jesus was on the cross, that he took all of our sins on his body. That His, that his that, 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 that the sins that we committed were taken on the body of Christ. So perhaps that's the reason why we see a serpent on the cross representing sin. Or also, I think what Paul says... Paul says in Colossians chapter two verses thirteen to fifteen, talking about the cross, he says that Jesus has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, contrary to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, and He's taken it out of, having disarmed. The principalities and the powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So the picture that Paul presents of the cross, there are many things that are happening in the cross of Christ. It says that that we we obtain the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross. He ties that in the verse before that to baptism as well. He also says that the law was nailed to the cross. Why is it that we don't have to follow the law of Moses any longer? Because it says right here, the law was nailed to the cross as well as the body of Christ that had died with him. And then it says he made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. What is this talking about? This is talking about Satan And the hosts of wickedness that are battling against us, it says he disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So perhaps in this way, that this is the final disarming and defeat of Satan with Jesus dying on the cross. So perhaps that's why we see a serpent on the cross because this is, this is making a public spectacle of Satan as well when Jesus died on the cross. So this is the context for John 3.16, God so loved the world. What's the point that Jesus is trying to make? He's having a discussion with Nicodemus and he just, he just used this example of the serpent in the wilderness. The people are dying as a result of their own sin. That we're like people that are snake bit by poisonous serpents in the wilderness. However, Jesus himself would be lifted up as the antidote to our sin on the cross to save us from death. That Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the point that he's trying to make. How this verse is twisted... What, what it says, uh, John, John 3.16, if we take a look at uh, uh, what it says, let's, let's read that one more time. John 3.16, familiar verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or have uh, everlasting life. Now, so, how is that verse typically used today? Well, people take that one verse in complete isolation and say, well, it says that uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the point people make is, well, there you have it. All you have to do is believe because that's all it says in John 3.16. Now, is, is Jesus telling people how to be saved here? No, he's making the point that he, is, he and the, the cross is going to be the only vehicle of salvation. There's a danger all over the place in the Christian world of what I call one-verse Christianity, which is basically all you need to know is one verse in the Bible, and let me tell you what that one verse is that you need to know. Almost as bad as that. Is another plague, which I would call two-verse Christianity, <laughs> where all you need to know is two verses, and some of you know what I'm talking about here on that one. Now, depending on your background, every group has its favorite verse that it likes to camp out on and say, this is the most important verse in the Bible. Uh, when I was a Catholic, it was growing up Catholic, it was Matthew 16:18. you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. That's all you need to know. Or John three three, you must be born again. John three sixteen, that's a big one. Romans ten nine, or or some people from other backgrounds, maybe it's Acts two thirty eight, Matthew twenty eight eighteen to twenty. Now the thing that all these groups have, the one or two verse Christianity the thing that they all have in common, is uh, first of all they're all lazy. They're too lazy to read the, the, all the scriptures. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is, and, and is it's all useful. Uh, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So who are we to pick a, pick a verse out here and say that this is the important one? This is totally going against what Jesus said when he was quoting from uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. So, it's, it's laziness, it's arrogance to think that we're going to know what the most important scripture is. Jesus said the most important scripture, the most important command is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to start ranking the scriptures, let's go in what, with what he said and not inject our own uh, bias into that. So it's the height of spiritual laziness and arrogance. Uh, you, you, of course, you tend to miss out other really, really critical, important teachings with that approach. And the other thing is, what's ironic to me is virtually every group that picks one or two scriptures, they misunderstand those scriptures. You think, well, at least they're going to have those scriptures, right? Usually they're taking that, those scriptures completely out of context and misunderstanding them. Because if you want to understand the scriptures, you need to read everything in context. Why is it that we're so focused here on expository teaching? Because we want to train ourselves to be reading things in context, and try to figure out what is the what is the writer or the author trying to say not what do I want to pull out of this how can i use it to advance my own personal agenda here no matter how noble i think that is so yeah jesus says we need to teach them to observe all things i have commanded you now certainly some commands are more important than others we want to focus on all the most important commands but not neglect the, the lesser ones either so, uh, uh, the, the one-verse, two-verse Christianity, uh, forget about it. The conclusion that most people in, in, in modern America, Protestant world, take today, who, who love John 3.16 and are flashing it all over the place, they'll say, well, this is the only scripture you really need to know, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, if, you know, just, let's, just, let's just forget everything else in the scriptures if this is true, then all you have to do is believe, and you have eternal life. It doesn't say anything about repenting. doesn't say anything about obeying. All you have to do is believe. Now, what a, what a convenient gospel that is. It just completely guts the Sermon on the Mount and most of what Jesus said in the gospels. But we have to remember, even if you just want to take that one verse, let's just take the one conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Let's just take that, if we want to start somewhere. Let's just take everything he said to Nicodemus. He starts off by telling Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' early church, it's obvious he's talking about baptism is essential in his conversation with Nicodemus. And what we're about to look at, he talks about the importance of repentance, as well. There's nothing in this verse about repentance. People throw this verse out at me say, well, that's all you need. It doesn't say anything about baptism here. Well, he talked about baptism of Nicodemus already. And I'll I'll come back and say, well, do you have to repent to be a Christian? Do you have to repent? It says nothing about repentance here. In in Luke chapter 13, people who like the uh, the, uh, the one verse Christianity, one that never shows up on anybody's list, is Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, where Jesus says, I tell you that if you do not repent, you too will perish. So Jesus, if you want to you wanna pick one scripture in the Bible, I'd I, I throw this, this one into the ring. That would be my nomination. Let's consider that one as well. Let's add that one on to whatever we're looking at. So the point that he's making In his discussion with Nicodemus here, he's already said you need to be born again. He's about to talk about sin and repentance, the light coming into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because they're evil. He's saying that when we're bitten by the snake, there's only going to be one way out to be healed. It's looking to the cross of Christ. We have to have faith in Jesus expressed by him being crucified on the cross, and that's the only way we're going to be saved, as foreshadowed by Moses. So let's continue, starting in verse, uh, picking up again at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does the truth comes into the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This passage right here, to me, in my own life, This is one of the passages I think the most about in terms of practical evangelism. And I'll explain why. The problem in people's lives was, is, and always will be sin. Let's not forget that. This is what it comes down to. The problem in people's lives is sin. The reason that they're bitten by the snake is because of their sin. Jesus came as the light of the world. He brought the light of truth and he exposed people's sin. He called them to repent. He began his message by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The same thing that John the Baptist said. How was Jesus treated and how were the prophets treated? It's a consistent story throughout Scripture, starting with Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Abel was killed by his brother Cain, whose unrighteousness was exposed by his brother's righteousness and didn't want to repent. First John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We're reminded of the story of Cain and Abel. It says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another, not as Cain, who was Of the wicked one and murdered his brother and why did he murder him because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous so right from the very beginning because the the wickedness of Cain's life was exposed he hated and killed his brother Joseph in Genesis 37 he exposes the sin of his brothers to his father he gives a bad report his brothers hate him they want to kill him and end up selling him into slavery. The, uh, the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, the great prophets, how were they treated? It says they were, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. When you think of the prophets in the Old Testament who were abused and treated like that, why were they treated badly? What's the reason? Why were they hated, persecuted, tortured, hunted down? Why was John the Baptist killed? John the Baptist was very popular with the people. But the king and the queen hated him because he called out their adulterous marriage and the religious leaders didn't like him because he was calling out their sin, particularly their greed and their love of money. If we are faithful disciples of Jesus... What's going to happen to us? Why was Jesus killed? Say, well, Jesus had to die because he had to die uh, so that we could be redeemed from our sins. Okay, but why? What was the motivation for the people who killed Jesus? In John 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. That's why Jesus was hated. That's why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because he exposed their evil and their wickedness. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 23. That's why they wanted him killed. Paul, when he was preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 17, in Athens... He's talking to them and he reaches out to them, he appeals to them, he tries to build a bridge of of common understanding. He he appreciates, says, I appreciate that you're very religious people. You You got God, you know, temples all over the place, including a temple to an unknown God. So he tries to reach out to them and relate to them. And then he drops the sledgehammer on them in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men, everywhere, to repent. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, he's retelling the story of his ministry and his message. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. That's Paul describing his own mission. He's not talking to people about all you have to do is believe and the grace of God is going to take it from there. He's calling people all over the world to repent of their sins. In John 15, Jesus reminds us, we'll talk about this later when we get to John 15, he says, look, the world hated me. And if you're following me, they're going to hate you too. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why are Christians going to be persecuted? The same reason that Jesus was persecuted if they're real Christians, which is they're going to testify. They're going to turn the light on and expose the sin of the world. This is the verdict, that light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because of their evil deeds. The people don't want to repent. They hate the light. The lessons that I take out of this personally and try to carry around with me, we're never going to nicey-nicey people into the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. You can't finesse it. You can't manage it. You can't do it nice enough. The only way that people are going to get into the kingdom of God is through repentance. God is calling all men everywhere to repent. And our job is to turn on the light and expose the sin of the world. And if we do that, a few people will love us, but most people will hate us. We will never win the acclaim and the applause of the world. Don't even try to do that. Our mission is to love and reach out to people with compassion and respect. However, it absolutely is to call them and to call each other Amen. to repentance, to bring the light, to expose the sin, not out of self-righteousness. We've got to take the plank out of our own eyes, too. A few people will be willing to step into the light, but most people will will not. You do this, we do this, we're going to be hated, and we're going to face, you know, persecution may be going on in certain parts of the world, it's going to come to America, the Christians start putting this into practice, it's going to come here, and it's going to come fast. Mm-hmm. We're going to be called narrow-minded and judgmental calling out sinful lifestyles, saying that there is only one place to look to to get healed from the serpent's bite, that there aren't many paths and many cures, there's only one, and only a few are going to be saved. If we're preaching a lifestyle of self-control, if we're rejecting fornication, internet pornography, adultery, drunkenness, lying, cheating, drug abuse, if we're turning the light on in all of those areas, Even in the religious world, we will be considered unenlightened, bigoted, not understanding the grace of God when we hold out the faith that's once for all entrusted to the saints and reject the world and don't look for the world for applause. When we put into practice what the Bible says about how we're supposed to dress, how we're supposed to speak, the role of men and women in marriage, permanence of marriage, disciplining children. We will not be attractive to the world. We will be the stench of the world. There's no perfect, clean way to do this. But it's all about bringing the light and bringing the truth. And that's what Jesus did. And most people... Aren't going to appreciate now. Maybe we're maybe we're not doing a good job of reaching out to people and building bridges, people with people. But a lot of times, it really comes down to people just don't want to repent. It's as simple as that. People don't want to come into the light. Let's close with John chapter three, starting in verse twenty-two. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Selim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified. Behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and, and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Uh, notice that this, this, this actually takes place shortly after the discussion with Nicodemus about you must be born of water and the Spirit, Then there's this lengthy uh, back and forth about, uh, about baptism here. And I notice in verse 23 it says John was baptizing in a certain location because there was much water there. Now in the, in the Bible it doesn't explain how you baptize someone exactly except it says you do it in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But John the Baptist was baptizing where there was much water. In the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 it says they stopped the chariot, went down into the water, and came up out of the water. And uh, of course, Paul in Romans chapter six talks about baptism as being buried with Christ in baptism. And historically, that uh, the, the understanding of baptism was you're completely immersed in water. And typically, they'd actually they would do it three times: once in the name of the Father, once the Son, once the Holy Spirit. And it totally fits with what it's saying here: is that this is the picture of baptism. It is a burial. So, uh, you know, the only time that someone would do something other than that. Uh, going back to the Didache and early Christian writing as if it was impossible for them to be immersed in water. I've never been in a situation like that, so I think we just go back and follow, look for, look for a place where there's plenty of water when we're baptizing people. One of the things I appreciate about John, now imagine this, John's disciples, John was originally much more popular than Jesus was, and then Jesus, Jesus came up, and, and John the Baptist was baptizing people Crowds would go out to him and he had his own group of followers and his followers are saying, wait a minute, that guy that you pointed to, the Lamb of God, the one you identified, now everybody's going out to follow him, not us. The crowds are following him now and he's getting a bigger, bigger following than, I, than we are you know can't can't you stop something about that maybe we could maybe we could do something to get the crowds back to following us again and john's attitude is i'm just doing my job i'm just doing my job i'm going to become less now and he's going to become more and that's okay i'm just i just came here to do what god asked me to do and I really appreciate that heart and that attitude. of not He's not comparing himself to Jesus. He's not comparing his ministry or his crowds to Jesus. He simply wants to do just what God told him to do. He didn't have this, this sectarian spirit where he's trying to build his own group. He's just trying to advance the kingdom of God. That's the attitude I want to have and, and that I hope that all of us will strive to have. Is We're not about building a group or a sect, we're about advancing the kingdom of God and simply doing whatever it is that God has asked us to do, that at the end of end of our lives, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, you did exactly what I put you here to do. Now that's difficult to know what that is, but, but that should be our focus, and that should be what we're praying uh, for and seeking. So he doesn't feel threatened he has wisdom and humility and he, he understands that now it's time for him to become less and that's okay. He points back to Jesus and he gives all the glory and honor to him. He says he is the one from above. I'm from the earth. He is the one who was given the spirit without measure. He is God's own son. He's the Christ. And he is the one we must have faith in to, get, to gain eternal life. Otherwise the wrath of God is going to remain on us. So... uh much to learn in this chapter. We'll, we'll close here, and uh, God willing, we'll pick it up again in John chapter 4 in a few weeks.